Thanks, Phil. Well. Morning, everyone. Good to be together this morning. Uh, can I say it's a lot warmer here than it was at 8am this morning, just quietly. Uh, it's nice to feel my... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Joe, uh, Joe did have the heaters on for us, so thank you, Joe. Um, didn't make a difference, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> we're, a, we're a hearty bunch of people out the 8amers, that's for sure. Well, friends, uh, let's have our Bibles open to 1 Samuel. Uh, we're going to finish our series today. And also what would be helpful is the outline, which is in your bulletin. That'll be good. And I always encourage you if you, to, to write some notes down or just if you want to remember some things, if that's helpful for you, it may not be, but um, some people don't. Uh, but I think it's a good idea. Um, write some things down so you remember whatever it might be. Well, how about we pray? And also, too, to remind at the end of today's uh, uh, sermon this morning, we'll be having a bit of a time of Q&A, and which might, you might want to ask questions in the last few weeks if you want to do that. Um, we'll see how we see what happens there. Hey? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that uh, you're indeed a good God who cares for us and loves us. Lord, thank you that you've drawn us together this morning, and um, it is so significant, and it's such a privilege to be here together. Thank you for that. Lord, teach us now. Uh, help us to hear your words and put them into practice. Amen. Well, I think it's this time of year, most across most of the schools in our beautiful state of New South Wales, there is a bunch of senior students who are entertaining leadership aspirations. Now, they're not, they're not aspiring to be Prime Minister, at least as far as I know, just yet. Um, maybe it's not the Australian cricket captain, maybe, maybe it will be one day, but it is, of course, being school captain to lead the student body. So policies are being formulated about the canteen and detention length, or whatever it might be, I don't know. Uh, lobby groups are surveyed. Speeches are written and given. Uh, votes are counted. And notwithstanding any crises, they now sweat upon the results. It's an exciting time. Now, although there's a slight lightness in my tone, uh, <laughs> you know, leadership's really important. Whether it's the local high school or whether it's in business or whether it's uh, sport or in, in the church, leadership shapes and drives action and attitude. That's what leadership does. It shapes and drives action and attitude. So we ought to pray for our leaders, especially in our schools. Now, as we started our series in 1 Samuel, we saw that Israel was experiencing, I, I guess we might call it, a leadership, uh, a leadership crisis. I'll try that again. And then one more time. I'll try it again, Rod, sorry. Oh, we're a bit of a... Well, technology, there we go. I don't know if mine works or not. But there, that's our... Um, sorry, if you can read the fine print there, you mightn't be able to... I don't know where that came from. But there's a leadership crisis, and some people say that. Um, so, who, in other words, here's the crisis. Who would lead Israel? Oh, is it going to be old Eli? <coughs> old Eli, who's who, struggling with health, going blind, a little bit deaf as well. Or maybe his dodgy sons. Remember Hophni and Phinehas? Uh, they were his wicked sons. Or perhaps God would raise up a leader, or maybe Israel would be swallowed up by its aggressive neighbour, the Philistines. We, we couldn't help but asking, what will God do? What will God do? Much. Much is the answer. 
So more recently, what chapters 4 to 6 has taught us is that God is completely capable of dealing with Israel's wicked leaders without any help from the Israelites. Remember chapter 4 particularly? Um, And he's fully competent to deal with Israel's enemy without the help of the Israelites. Remember chapters 5 and 6, the heavy hand of the Lord. In other words, the very things that we think that might have described or the very things we might have described as making up a leadership crisis in Israel, corrupt people in power, uh, the threat of mighty enemies, are the things that God has now demonstrated he can deal with for Israel without the help of any human leader at all. You see, it it wasn't really a leadership crisis. Uh, Sorry, sorry, Rod, there we go. Is this going to work for me? I'll just try it. Let's just give it there. Right, we're good. All right. The, 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 it wasn't really a leadership crisis. Well, they were having, it was a God crisis. If Israel had a problem, they had a problem with God himself. And so the, as we read the last three chapters, we noticed that God's heavy hand fell on Israel just as much as the Philistines. And so we should keep asking why. Now, perhaps we're reminded of the, uh, again of the answer as we pick up the last verse of chapter 6 and the first couple of verses of chapter ha- 7. Have a look at that now. Look at chapter 6, verse 21. Uh, then they, the elders at Beth Shemesh... Now, just a, a pause for a minute. Don't forget, here's, here's our map from last week. Uh, there's Beth Shemesh. There's Shiloh, Ebenezer, where that first battle was in chapters um, uh, uh, 4 and 5, Aphek, and that's the tr- where the ark ended up travelling and finally into Israel, Beth Shemesh, and that name there, Kiriath Jurim, we'll get to in a moment, where the ark stayed for 20 years. I'll leave that up for a minute. But if you look at your Bibles in chapter um, 6, verse 21, then they, the elders at Beth Shemesh, sent, uh, sent messengers to the people of Kiriath Jurim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your place. Remember those sort of words from last week? So the men at Kiriath Jerem came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. Now, remember what the ark represented. Not only God's promises, his covenant promises, but God's covenant expectations for his people. And it also reminded God's people of God's presence and God's power. That's what the ark reminded them of and taught them. And the people, just like the Philistines, did not want it. Take it up to your place. We don't want it. We don't want God near us. That's what they were saying. So it was sent up to Abinadab's house and it stayed there for 20 years. Actually, it was not until David brought it up to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6 that we hear again of the ark. Look at verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2. It was, uh, it was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at kiriath Jerem, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. But it wasn't 20 years of mourning. No, no, no. It was 20 years of neglect. Now, it's a bit of a tricky part of the Bible, tricky verse, this one. You see, the most sensible reading here uh, is this, that, you see... Otherwise, we'd have to conclude that the period covered from 1 Samuel 7 verse 2 and up to 2 Samuel 6 when the ark is heard of again was just 20 years. Now, 
that's quite an unnatural reading of these chapters. So the most natural reading is that these 20 years uh, were 20 years of neglect and then they mourned. The ark, God, you see, was out of mind, out of sight. And the eventual consequences of this neglect was that Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. You remember the pattern of judges? Because that's what we're seeing again. Remember this? And we're coming up to this the Israel crying out. This, this part all over again. See, previously Israel had cried out to the Lord, but this time the wording's a little bit different in chapter 7, but the sense is the same. After 20 years, Israel experienced yet another change of heart and turned yet again to the Lord. And with it came tears. Okay, so that's quite a long introduction, isn't it? That's where we're at at the moment. And we come to a very significant day in the life of Israel. We'll talk more about that at the moment. But look at verse 3. Verse 3, all of a sudden, guess who's back on the scene? Samuel is back on the scene. Now, we haven't heard from him uh, since four, chapter 4, verse 1. About 20 years ago, we think. Samuel's words, God's words, have now been fulfilled and now we've come to this moment. The word of the Lord was to be heard again and what they heard, as one commentator put it, I like this term, was the gospel according to Samuel. And you will see there in your outline I've, I've given you, I guess, three points which sum up this little, this uh, Samuel's gospel. So, halfway through verse 3, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So first in Samuel's gospel, you see, there's return. Here's confirmation of what the last 20 years have looked like. You see, they have been away, but now they're returning. They had sought to be rid of the ark or the Lord himself. And notice too, Samuel isn't fooled by the emotion of the moment. True returning to the Lord isn't something just defined by weeping and wailing. Now, repentance, as the Bible goes on to explain uh, such returning, is not just weeping, it's returning with all your, all your heart. It's all your being. Second, genuine repentance is putting away that which competes with God. So rid yourselves of the foreign gods that are among you. So over the last 20 years, this is what's been happening. They, Israel has taken on a Canaanite lifestyle. They've, they've blended in. And they've included, that they've, they've taken on the Canaanite lifestyle and the gods included in that. They have learned their ways and, and it's blended in with them. True returning, the second aspects of Samuel's gospel, is putting away those gods, those foreign gods. That's what it means to return to God. Or as the Apostle Paul wrote, fleeing from the gods of this age. I was talking to a missionary friend a little while ago. And uh, he just returned from serving in Madagascar. Um, that's a real country, not just a cartoon. Anyway, um, he'd been there for quite some time. And he, he spoke about the devil's work, in, uh, in particularly in witchcraft and animistic spirituality. So that, in other words, that... Um, Objects like places, animals and, and so on have a distinct spiritual essence. That's, in a nutshell, animistic spirituality. So he was saying that those beliefs have led people, that they lead people away from Jesus. No surprise there. 
And often, though, it was a Jesus plus. So these Christians would say, yes, I'll, I'll believe in Jesus, but I'm going to go to the witch doctor as well. I'm going to go to the witch doctor and, and I guess, put my trust in the witch doctor. And that, that's normal, I guess. Now, for my missionary friend, this was a challenge to him to, to say to him, no, you, it's, it's Jesus only. Uh, Jesus, not Jesus plus. It's not the gospel plus something else. Because when you say gospel plus something else, then you've got no gospel at all. It's not no Jesus at all. Anyway, so that's what the, 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 those were the foreign gods, the witchcraft and the animistic spirituality that the believers in Madagascar ha- had to get rid of. They had to be rid of those things. Now, my friend spent some time talking to me about this, and, and for a while he actually argued with me that this work of the devil was more powerful than anything he'd seen back in Australia. And I pushed back a bit. <laughs> and I said to him, well, because the devil doesn't care what foreign god it is. He doesn't care whether it's animistic idols and, and witchcraft in Madagascar or the Baals and Ashtoreths in Israel or greed or materialism or family or sport or just the experience in modern Australia. The devil doesn't care what god it is. He just wants to lead you away from Jesus. And it worked just as powerfully, given the chance, by whatever means, to stop us returning to the Lord. True repentance is getting rid of those idols, those foreign gods. So friends, what do you need to get rid of in your life at the moment? It's probably not witchcraft and animistic spirituality. If it is, chat to me, I'm glad to help you and pray for you and so on. Um, But it's more likely it's those other things. Greed, materialism, the God of family, sport and so on. Experience. It's a big, big God these days and it draws us away from Jesus. It draws us away from meeting with his people. What do you need to get rid of? What gods need to be taken to the spiritual tip and discarded? What are they? Because you see, you won't be returning to the Lord with a whole heart until you make that trip. And I think that leads us to Samuel's third point of his, uh, his gospel. That is, commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. Return with all your heart. That is, you see, it's exclusive, it's single-minded, wholehearted commitment to the Lord and to the Lord alone. It's not a half-half. It's not a lukewarm. It's not, I'm going to give God the leftovers of my life. No, no, no. It's all your heart. All your heart. Well, the final point in Samuel's gospel, I guess, is on the back of those three commands that we see in our outlines and and, and in the words there. Uh, That is God's promise, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. See, the Philistine threat had not subsided. It was still there, still real and menacing. But let's not forget the history. Uh, We we need to remember the history to understand this a bit better. In the past, the Israelites were given over to the Philistines for their worship of foreign gods. Uh, chapter 4 is a good example. The Philistines were an instrument of God's judgment. So the promise we read of here in verse 3 is wonderful. Return to the Lord with your whole heart, which means ridding yourselves of the pagan gods. And what will he do? He'll save you. He'll save you from your enemies and from judgment. Well, according to verse 4, that's exactly how they responded. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths 
and serve the Lord only. Finally, finally, this era, these past 20 years of uh, its apostasy, worshipping other gods, had come to an end. This is a good day. Now, I do like the term gospel here because the response of Israel that day is like the experience of followers of Jesus today. So here's how Paul describes this experience of followers of Jesus. You might remember these, these words when we looked at 1 Thessalonians a little while back. Paul says about these Christians in Thessalonica, you turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who rescues us, here's the promise, us from the coming wrath. Well, this moment in Israel's history, as I said, it, it, it was so important that the summary description in verses 3 and 4 is now elaborated in verses 5 to 12. It's expanded. Uh, but let's note a few things quickly. Verse 5 tells us that at Mizpah, uh, the people gathered in repentance, confessed their sin, and Samuel led them. Samuel called this gathering in dire circumstances. Israel's future was in the balance and Samuel said, I will intercede with the Lord for you. He'll pray for them. That's what Israel needed. Israel needed an intercessor. Israel had turned away from God and worshipped other gods. They had come under the judgment of God and they had come to understand that they could not stand before him. They needed a mediator. You know, a little while back, maybe it's recently, I don't watch, I, don't know, I watch a little bit of TV, but I like watching sport on TV most of the time. Um, but a little while ago, it seemed to me that when I turned the TV on at night, all I would get was a courtroom drama. Isn't that true? I think it was. Now, this, this, sounds like, this list sounds like a question on a um, trivia night. Last night, I, I, was, I had the privilege of being the MC for the Robertson Public School PNC trivia night. It was good fun. And um, uh, I, there was... My wife's table didn't win, and, and are you okay with that? Have you moved on, Michelle? Yeah. Only by one point, yeah. So, yeah, there was... I felt the tension in the room, to be honest. Anyway, so when I turn the TV on a few... All I get is courtroom dramas, LA Law. So it's a bit, a bit like a trivial question. You know, how many courtroom dramas can you, mention, can you think of? Well, I thought of quite a few. LA Law, The Good Wife, Boston Legal, Ally McBeal, Matlock. They're going back a bit. Jag, remember Jag? Yeah. Who could forget Jag? Uh, the Good Fight, Silk, Rake, the only Aussie one I could think of, and we must not forget Ju uh, Judge Judy. Um, <laughs> now, when you look at those shows, and I suppose in real life as well, the heart of those courtroom dramas, actually the heart of any criminal court, a good criminal court, is the defence lawyer. Isn't that true? The defence lawyer, a lawyer uh, pleading his case or her case to the judge, representing, I was going to say the guilty party, that's not quite fair, is it? But in the case of the Israelites, that, that is fair. That's what Samuel was. And without such a mediator, there was no hope. See, Samuel the prophet is uh, before God for the people of Israel. He intercedes for them. He mediates for them. That's what he does. Because they cannot do it themselves. And the last 20 years have proven that. So God provided in the form of Samuel an intercessor for his people. Someone to do what they plainly could not do themselves. Well, it wasn't long before their return to the Lord was put to the test. And so in verses 7 to 9, here come the Philistines. So just like 20 years ago, 
chapter 4, Israel faced off against the Philistines. But this time, the outcome is very different, isn't it? Now, no doubt they remembered the dreadful defeat, their dreadful defeat, not long ago. So they were afraid, verse 7 tells us, something that was not the case last time. Last time they were filled with a cocky arrogance. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this time there seems to be a new humility. This time they know better. And notice their response to their fear. In verse 8, they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out for us. A crying out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may rescue us from the land of the hand of the Philistines. Remember last time? Last time they tried to twist God's arm as they wheeled out the ark. Here's our magic super weapon. Um, as they try to win against the Philistines, rolling out the ark and expecting God to act. We call this thinking their, um, their rabbit foot theology. You know, it's like a superstition. That's what it was. They were not submitting to God's power, but rather trying to control him and harness his power. But this time, things are different. What do they do this time? They call on Samuel to cry out to our God. You notice that? They were his people, they confessed. And of course, that's what prayer is, isn't it? That's what prayer is. We cry out to God in trust and dependence as God's people. It's where we submit to God that he is in control of all things. That is what prayer is, and that's what went on that day. And at the end of verse 9, the answer of, well, it's very matter-of-fact, isn't it? And the Lord answered him. And his answer in the following verses was unmistakable. 7 verse 10, the second half of verse 10. But that day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. So the, the, uh, the Philistines were defeated. What ground they had taken from Israel had re was recovered. Uh, some of Gath, for example, a couple of, um, of the towns. The Philistines were no longer the cause of fear. A period of peace began in Israel. This is what God has done for them. This is what God has done for them. This was, the out, this was, not their, it was an outcome that was not their making, was it? They didn't earn it. It was not because of their own virtue or strength. Don't forget the last 20 years. No, no, they are in this situation because of what their Lord has done for them. Now, of course, there's a similarity, isn't it? Similarity here, but with our relationship with God and what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus. Our enemy has been defeated. This is, not, this is what God has done for us. We can hold our heads high like Israel, not because of our own virtue or strength. You don't need 20 years of life to learn that. Uh, but because of what our, the Lord, our God, has done for us in the victory of Jesus on the cross. And so our response ought to be just like Israel. Remember Israel's response. You can see it in verse 15. Samuel was to go on judging or leading them in godliness, righteousness, calling God's people to be rid, rid themselves of idols, to wholehearted devotion to the Lord alone. Samuel would offer the sacrifices and call them to repentance. And so Israel's experience was to be a shadow of our own. Just as Israel was called to righteousness, living like Jesus in response to what God has done for them, so we are called to righteousness, living like Jesus in response to what God has done for us in Jesus. You see? A parallel there that we mustn't miss. Well, friends, let's, let's close this together a little bit. Uh, th this, was a, this, is a, this was a big day. But I'll just 
flip that over for me, thanks. Uh, th this is a big day in Israel's history. When Israel became what Israel was meant to be. This chapter, that's the last in our series, and the, the plan is to go back to 1 Samuel next year, this chapter has shown us the type of leader Israel actually needed. Not, not some great military genius. God had categorically uh, shown that he could deal with Israel's enemies without the need of some hero. Nor did they need some political hotshot who could organise the nation. Israel's need uh, could not be met by management abilities. Israel's great need was a leader who could bring them back to God. That was Israel's great need. They needed a leader who would lead them in righteousness. They needed a Samuel, and God gave them a Samuel. Sadly, as we read on in chapter 8, we find that the lessons of this moment, um, well, they're not remembered very well. You can read that little the first paragraph of chapter 8. We, we hear about Samuel's sons, and they weren't much good. Friends, Israel didn't seem to remember these lessons very well, but let's make sure you and I do. Let's make sure we, we do. You see, if we've learned anything over the past seven weeks, anything from Israel's experience, I hope that we can see how these chapters point us to the leader that we need. He's the one sent by God to bring us back to God. He's the one who intercedes for us who leads us in righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ is the leader of whom Samuel was a faint shadow. This is how one commentator concluded it. He writes, What a great day it was for Israel when God gave them Samuel. And what a brilliant day it is for those of us who have Jesus as our Lord. How about I pray? And uh, we'll have time for questions, comments. I'll give you a few moments to think as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we, most, we thank you now most of all for the Lord Jesus. We thank you as we read in uh, 1 Corinthians that we are enriched in every way in Jesus. He is the leader that we need. Lord, thank you that you speak to us through Jesus who intercedes for us. Uh, Lord God, we, um, we pray that you would help us to be strong, bold, and a trust in you as we rid ourselves of the idols of this age. We pray that we return to you with a whole heart. And maybe today is a day, Lord God, that, that anyone here today needs to just do that. We need to return to you, not with half, but our whole hearts, giving everything we have over to you. And Lord, that may, that may mean lots of different things. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to do that. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us by your spirit as we do that. And Lord, we thank you for your word today. It's a good challenge that we need. In Jesus' name, amen.